0: Welcome to the Rashi Shi'ur, coming to you from the Mizrahi Bet Midrash in Melbourne, Australia. Shh, calm down. (laughs) So we'll start with a Rashi of the week from the Sedra of Bahar. For those listening in Israel, that was last week. And I'm going to cheat a little bit because I'm going to give a question of Rashi and an answer of someone else. So the first pasuk in Bahar says, Hashem spoke Bahar Sinai. And then he goes on to talk about the laws of Shmita and Yovel. And Rashi famously asks, Ma Inyan Shmita Eitzel Har Sinai. What's the connection between the laws of Shmita? And we have to be Dafka told that it was given at Har Sinai. After all, says Rashi, all the mitzvot were given at Har Sinai. And Rashi's answer is, is quite technical and it's beyond the scope of this part of the Shia. So I will share the Kliyakara's answer because the Kliyakar says, Oh, what a question. So how do you get to Har Sinai? You count 49 days, and then you have the Kedusha of Harasinai. So, similarly, Shmita and Yovel is exactly the same thing. You count seven lots of seven, and then you get to the Kedusha of the Yovel. Now, where is the Kedusha of the Yovel manifest? In Eretz Israel. So, what we have to do is take the Kedusha of Harasinai, which was arrived after 49 days and take it with us to Eretz Israel and implant that Kedusha there and we can celebrate it after 49 years. So Ma'inyan, Shmita Eitzel Hasinai, what's the connection between Shmita and Hasinai, says the Kliyakah, they're exactly the same thing. They're about going through a process of 49 and then you get to the level of Kedusha. Right, let's return to Bereshit Perugimel, Pasuk Tet Vav. And Hashem is now, he's punished the Nachash, and now he is saying to the woman, no, sorry, he's still saying to the Nachash, uh, as a continuation of the cursing to the Nachash, asit uvein ha'isha, And I will place enmity between you and between the woman, uvein zaracha, uvein zara, and between your descendants and her descendants. And we'll just stop there. Because we explained last week that this was a response to the way Rashi has explained the Nachash's plan all along. Nachash's plan all along was to get Chava and to get rid of Adam. It was a classic love triangle and Nachash has to eliminate Adam and he does that by getting Adam to eat the fruit. So the question then is, so why didn't he persuade Adam? Why did he persuade Chava? Now, Chava is also going to eat the fruit, and then, in theory, she's going to die. So how will that help the Nachash? So the answer to that is, he assumes that she will give to her husband first, because that's a nice sort of thing to do, and then she will eat. But by the time she's eaten, Adam will be out the picture. But the bigger question, perhaps, is in which case, why doesn't he just go straight to Adam and persuade him to eat the fruit? Why does he go to Chava first? And there, on that, Rashi said... Um, that women are datan kalot, their minds are light or quick, um, to be influenced or to be seduced. And they know how to influence or seduce their husbands. And therefore Hashem says, the Eva asit. That explains why Hashem says I will put enmity because that's the ultimate crushing of the Nachash's original plan that he would be away in some romantic relationship or not necessarily romantic but uh, whatever with, the, with Chava and the result is there's Eva, there's enmity instead. So I said last week that we got to the point, and it wasn't deliberate honestly, that we had to uh, end the Shi'ur on this inyan of Nashim Daton Kalot. So I said I'd say just a few words on it. It's a topic which is much talked about, especially in some contemporary circles, and it's debated what it means and how we should understand it. So the Gemara says in two places, and only two places, Nashim Daton Kalot. The Rishonim used this phrase in other places, in some ways, that, some places that's accepted, in some ways it's not. For instance, um, there are some Rishonim, and I forget where, who says that on the basis of Nashim, Datan, Kalot, women cannot be shochtim. Women cannot be given the task of, of shechita because it will require something that Datan, Kalot would uh, stand in the way of. But it's interesting to note that Tosus rejects that and says, Tosus says, that's not a problem. As it happens, Tosfot, it doesn't lead to a great uh, uh, career move for a lot of women, to be shocked in, but, but there is an opinion that Nashim Datan Kalot applies in this situation, and Tosfot says it doesn't. And my point is that although some Rishonim bring it up in other places, that's not authoritative in the way that the two places in the Gemara is. Now, of course, Rashi bringing it here is another place where a Rishon chooses to use the principle, and let's understand what those two places are. So before I do that, sorry, one more point of introduction. Now, I'm speaking to a a large group of, of thinking women, and I don't know if this is an issue for you or not. So I don't know how much time I need to spend on it. But let me just say, I think there are basically three approaches one can take. And the first is to say, the Gemara might say, Nashim, Datan, Kalot, but I disagree with it. Now, everyone's totally entitled to do that. It just happens not to be the way of Orthodox Judaism to reject what the Talmud says. That's approach number one. Approach number two is to say, well, the rabbis said a lot of things, some of which are halakha, uh, and some of which are just their own observations of society or science or sociology, and sometimes they got it right and sometimes they got it wrong. Now, I don't think that's a totally unreasonable position to say, and I've already said in this very sheer, that um, in terms of Chazal's knowledge of science... I have no problem, and many others have no problem, and the Rambam and Rav Hirsch, for instance, have no problem in saying that Chazal's knowledge of science was based on what they knew from their time and wasn't necessarily correct. The problem with that, however, is when they make observations like this about what you might call psychological, um, and they derive halakhot from it, as we're about to see, so others... Uh, Rav Soloveitchik in particular would say when they give a statement like this, they're making an ontological observation. And for those who don't know what ontological means, which I didn't until recently, it means it's like an essential real fact of the world. And especially if Chazal then derive halacha from it, you can't just dismiss it and say that they didn't know really what they were talking about. So the third approach is to try and see exactly how it is used and the cases in which it's used and try and derive what it means from the context in which it's used and no more than that. In other words, I'm trying to say that there is absolutely no license to say Chazal think women are less intelligent than men because that's not what the phrase means in the context it's used and anyone, um, big or small, learned or unlearned, who tries to derive that is clearly mistaken. So what are the two instances? So I mentioned this at the end of last week's shia, and um, one of a number, I won't embarrass her, uh, knew exactly the two references to which I was referring, because she is a Talmud al-Chachama. Um, anyway, and one is in the laws of Yichud. So in Kedushin, Peruk, uh, daf, Kedushin, daf Pei, bet. Uh, We have an interesting fact in the laws of Yichud. Now, Yichud, we basically know what the idea is, that men and women shouldn't be alone together. Uh, It's an area of halacha, I just want to say, by the way, which I think is not taken with the seriousness that it deserves. And I think Yichud is like a brilliant idea. And if everyone followed the laws of Yichud, there'd be much less pain and much less regrettable actions and much less destruction of families than we have today. So that's just a little plug for the laws of Yichud. Um, (laughs) So the, the, the Mishnah says that a woman... Is allowed to be secluded with two men but a man is not allowed to be secluded with two women and before we go any further we are when we talk about laws of Yichud we're not talking about people who have in mind or are the sort of people who are likely to act immorally the laws of Yichud won't help them anyway we're talking about people who've got no intention of acting immorally however sometimes they get overcome by human desires and the laws of Yichud are designed to avoid that possibility. Somebody who might suddenly become overcome, if they're in a situation where they're not going to be able to act on those desires, they're going to be saved from that Sahara. So the Gemara asks, why is it asymmetrical? Why is it okay for two men to be with one woman and not with one woman to... Sorry, uh, yes, and not one man and two women. And the answer is, kalot. <laughs> women are... Uh, their, their dart, their mind, is Kal is light. Uh, that's the most literal translation. And the implication is that two women are more likely to be influenced or to fall prey to their emotions or the man's emotions than are two men. Or, But another way, um, a man is likely to guard another man from succumbing, but a woman is not able, necessarily, to guard another woman from succumbing. That's one of the instances. The other instance is very different. It's in Shabbat, Peret Lamud Gimel, and it tells of the story of Rabbi Shimon bar Yachai, who said things um, not nice about the Romans, and the Romans put a death penalty on his, on his head, and he ran away. And his wife came to feed him every day. And then he said, this is not a good idea, because the Romans might capture her, And torture her and she might give away our hiding place because Noshim Datan Kalot. And therefore he decided to go away and live in the cave with the carob tree and uh, miracles to sustain him and his wife didn't know where he was. So those are the, the two and the only two instances in the Gemara. There's a famous Rashi in Avodah Bet where he tells a story of Bruria. We won't get into that now. I think there's a lot of evidence to say, certainly post-Talmudic, and it might even be a complete insertion into the Rashi text. Um, and there he quotes the Indian of da- Nashim Dat, and Kalat. But as I say, I think what we have to take as authoritative and we have to understand is what the Gemara says. We're not necessarily bound to what the Roshonim say or what's said in the name of the Roshonim. So to cut a long story short, I'm not going to drag this out much further, What it seems from those two instances is the Gemara is saying that women are easier to persuade either to give up secrets, in the case of the wife of Rav Hashem, or to act in a way that they might not otherwise plan to do. Uh, And perhaps what we're also saying is they're easier to prey on their emotions rather than their rationality, and that doesn't necessarily apply to men. Now, is that necessarily true? Well, the Gemara says it. How do we understand that? Does it apply to other cases? I said, absolutely not. It applies to those two cases. And I suppose, since we we can go back to the starting point, that would fit in with what Rashi says here. Rashi is quoting a Midrash, but not verbatim, and it's it's, it's his actual phraseology to say it's an Indian of Nashim Daton Kalot. But the point he makes here is that the reason Menachesh went to Chava was because she would be easier to persuade. But it's also worth noting that this, uh, this, this persuasion business is very much a double-edged sword. It's almost a perfect metaphor. Because Rashi says, uh, that he, that the Nachash, can persuade her. And they know how to persuade their husbands. So the point is, the husbands are also persuadable or influenceable or seducible And the women have a special ability to use their own ability to be persuaded to then use that to persuade others. So that's what Rashi is saying. And uh, I'll come to the conclusion of this little mini uh, tractate or treatise to say that it seems to me the only way of understanding this is Rashi, based on the Gemara, is saying women are more persuadable, at least in this instance. And... um, That's it. Has anyone else learnt more about Datan Dath We've Got anything to add to the discussion? No? Okay. We'll move on. Okay. So what else does Hashem say to the woman? Having said, I will put enmity between you and the snake, and then between your descendants and his descendants. Sorry, he's talking to the snake. I'm sorry, he's talking to the snake, and he says, I'll put enmity between your descendants of the snake and her descendants, i.e. humankind. And he goes on to say... Who Yeshu Rosh? He will do something. He—that's the descendants of Chava. So that's he, humanity. Will do something to the head of the snake. Va'ata a Akev, and you, the snake, will do something to his heel. Now, what is the something? So Rashi is going to help us with this. Well, the first word yeshufcha, and the second word, tushufenu, which we'll notice are similar. So Rashi says on the first word, yushufach, <coughs> Yekatcha, he will pound you, right? bash you. Kamo, and he brings a, another text, another Pasuk with a similar word, kamo oto." Now what does that help us? Now there it's talking about, Moshe is describing how he came down from the mountain and saw the eagle. And he smashed up the eagle and pounded it into dust. So the ekot there is similar to yekatata here. But that's not what's crucial. What's crucial is the next words of Rashi. The Targumo and the Targum, the on- onculus, the Aramaic translation of the Ekot, there in Devarim is the Shafit Yate. And I pounded it. Now, Rashi is doing what Rashi often does, and is If he wants to say what the meaning of an obscure word is, as we've already seen quite a few times, he will find a pasuk somewhere else in Tanakh which has the same word, and the context will be clearer as to what it means in that proof text. Here he's doing something a little bit different. He's saying, I can find a targum, an Aramaic translation, which has the same root. Because Rashi is very much of the opinion that Aramaic and Hebrew, at least the Targum, which is not just any old translation, it comes from Atana, uh, from Onkelos, it's got great Chashivat uh, and even Kedusha, uh, that's why we have a mitzvah to read it every week, um, and what the Targum says relates very closely to the meaning of the Hebrew words. So if, he, if Targum uses Shafit and we have here Yeshufcha, they are related, and since the targum there, Shofit, is the targum, the translation of the word va'ekot, I will pound, or I pound it, so we can see that that's what it means here. Which makes a lot of sense. Mankind will pound the head of the snake. And remember, and it's going to be relevant for the next comment, there's a height difference. Because we've already said, how does a snake get about? On its tummy. On its tummy. It has no legs. They were cut off. So it's going to be down there on the ground. So it's quite natural that a person can smash its head in. And by the way, that's also appropriate because what's the context of going on here? What is Hashem, why is Hashem speaking to Nachash at this point? And I'm setting you up for the next words. Why is Hashem speaking to Nachash at this point? Is he saying, hello, Nachash, I've got some nice things for you? Punishing. He's punishing him. Thank you. It's a curse. So it makes sense that your head is going to be trodden on. That's, that's part of the curse. And then it says, v'ata ata tushufeno akave. And you, well, what does tushufeno mean? So let's see Rashi. Rashi says the atta to a Lo ye lacha kuma, you will not have any ability to get up. Vitishkeno baakvo. And you will bite him on the heel. The afni tamitenu. And from there, he will die. He brings a pasuk from Yeshaya, which means where it means, means to blow. He will blow them. And then he says, When the nachash comes to bite, he blows, or perhaps better still, as Art scroll says, he hisses like a cry. And then he says, The language falls on the language. In other words, which means he will pound. And which means you will is. They're related. They sound like the same word. Therefore, That's why the Pasuk wrote with both of them. Okay, a few things to say. Um, let's deal with one quickly um rashi says on you will bite him on the heel why does rashi then say you will not have any ability to get up and you will bite him on the heel why does rashi have to say that and remember what i said to you a moment ago because if you just had your bite him on the heel is that a curse sounds like great power Sounds like, fair enough, quid pro quo. He'll bite you, he'll smash you on your head, but it's okay because you'll bite him on the heel. It can't be okay, why not? Because this is punishment, this is curse. The whole point of this speech of Hashem to the Nachash is curse. So Rashi has to say how, um, which Rashi explains as meaning you will bite him on the heel, is itself a curse. It's only on the heel, that you could, because you can't reach any higher, now why, why, why might we have thought so? Because even though we've already been told that you'll crawl on your belly and you won't have legs, you might thought that the snake can somehow like jump up like some animals can and reach higher than a heel. No, you can't. Rashi explains. But the cave teaches us that you won't get any higher than the heel. But it also has to say why you would bother to bite him on the heel. Why would the snake want to do that? And that's why Rashi also says the af misham to even from there, from the heel, you'll be able to kill him. Because you might have thought, having said that the snake is punished by only being able to reach the heel, then there's not much point in reaching the heel. After all, we've, in the previous example, a few <coughs> words before, the head is the vital organ that is worth attacking if you want to get rid of the snake. So you might think the heel doesn't achieve very much, so what's the point of biting it? So Rushi answers that by saying that you, um, you're going to want to bite the heel, you can't get any higher than that but that's because you can kill him from there now Rashi goes on about this yeshufrach and what that means what that means and then he ends up by saying the pasuk used those words because they're similar in other words what words could the pasuk have used instead of the first yeshufrach what could it have said yekatcha uh, or whatever it is yes if Rashi says, it means, you yekatcha, yekatcha, that's it. He will pound you, he will bash you. He should have said, he will bash you. And a clearer point is the second part, when it says, you the snake, to which means you will make a hissing sound while you bite the heel, is very long way round. So if Rashi really means you will bite the heel, what should he have said? What should the passage have said? You will bite the heel, Right? Uh, with the word Nashach so why did the Pasuk use two different words and Rashi answers that by saying the the Pasuk went out of its way to find words which were similar in which case why doesn't Rashi say they mean the same thing as other Mephoshim do other Mephoshim say they mean the same thing and they look the same so Rashi goes out of its way to say they don't mean the same thing because they can't mean the same thing because how do snakes attack people we know that. What do they do? They bite. How do people attack snakes? They don't. What don't they do? They, bite. they don't bite. It doesn't make sense to say that they're going to attack in the same way. Right? A, a battle between a snake and a person is interesting because they've got very different weapons in their arsenal. So the way the snake attacks a person is very much not the way a person attacks the snake. So even though they look like he's going to do to you what you're going to do to him, Rashi has to find a way to explain that's not what it means because that doesn't make sense. So therefore, he says, both of these words are, if you like, proxies for different things. Yeshufach is an alternative word for um, buy. he will pound you, bash you, smite you. Um, to Tushufano is not even an alternative word for biting, it's just an action associated with the biting, and the Rashi concludes by saying, "Loshen Nafal al he says that in a few other places and the Torah goes out of its way to use similar phrases to create some sort of Middah Konegid Middah effect even when it doesn't literally mean that ok dealt with the snake, so who's next? Chava Pasuk Tet El Ha Isha Omar, to the woman he said, Harba Arber Itzvonech, I will multiply, doubled for effect, your suffering, the Heronech, and your pregnancy. tel tel Teldi Vanim, with suffering, you will raise, you will, bear, no, sorry, you will bear children. And then it says, Ve sheikh to your man, your husband, will be your, Rashi says, desire, and he will rule over you. That's what it says to the woman. And we do understand, um, because this seems to be the understanding of everybody, that this is not just said to one individual, but she is representing womankind, and these curses are going to apply to all women. And I suppose, like we said quite clearly, that the curse to the snake is going to apply to the snake and all its descendants. So what are these things said to the women? And again, you know, it's a little bit awkward. Some this is, uh, people might find difficulties with what we're going to say. Um, all I can do is read what it says here. It's one says Rashi, this is the trouble of raising children. So raising children is the most wonderful thing in the world, uh, undoubtedly, better than anything else. However, it's not easy. It's not easy. It takes a lot of hard work. And the Mephoshim say this is relevant to the woman rather than to the man because the reality is more of the burden falls on the woman than on the man. For some reasons, for physical reasons, because it includes nursing the child, which men aren't very good at. um, but it also includes Gidul Bonim Tsar Gidul bonim, means generally raising children which men certainly do have a share in that Tsar and certainly should have a share in that Tsar but the reality is it falls more on the woman and then he says V'heironech and Rashi says Dzeh Tsar Ha'ibur that is the pain of pregnancy and then he says tild, uh, Vanim with pain you will bear children That is the pain of birth. Any questions? That is the pain of raising children, of pregnancy, and of birth. Weird order. order. Thank you. Why is it weird? (laughs) It should go pregnancy, pregnancy, birth. Uh, Sorry? It's just the first one. Yes, the first one's in the wrong place. Okay. So the answer that is given is, um, well, we actually saw a little while ago, we we actually looked up uh, a Gomorrah in Sanhedrin, but we're going to see in Rashi, on Peredalad Pasuk Aleph, the following idea, that until this curse was given, labour and birth were very different, and they were very quick. It wasn't nine months. It was much more instantaneous than that. And here's the point. It had already happened. So Rashi says... Kain and Hevel were already born by this point. Okay? And that's based on the Gemara that says in the first, on that day, the first day of creation, loads of things happened um, including the birth of two sons. So that would explain why Chava is not cursed initially with Tsar Leda or Tsar HaIbor. She's already got two children, so what's the first one she's going to encounter now? The pain of Banim of raising children. One can also say that there is a spectrum here of increasing levels of pain. Uh, in other words, Gilbanim is hard, Tzaha ibur, the pain of pregnancy, is harder still, and the Tsar of Leda, the pain of childbirth, is harder still. Um, it's not something I've ever experienced directly. I like to think that I've sort of empathised five times. Um, I... I don't know if taha ibur is necessarily so painful. and I think it varies very much from situation to situation. Whether that's worse than Tzar bonim, I don't know. Tzar bonim is hard to actually sort of quantify in terms of pain. Um, but it is said that the reason for the order, another answer to the question of the odd order, is that we're going from less pain to more pain. Okay. Then he says, Fe'el <laughs> isheikh just by the k- Just by the way, remember that phrase because when we get to, um, I'll tell you where. Hmm? When we get to Kain, yeah, and we get to Perik D'Alapotik Zion, we'll find a very similar phrase, almost identical in a slightly, or a very different context. Anyway, says Rashi. Rashi says something very interesting. Again, a little bit un- strange and a little bit uncomfortable, um, but very interesting. For Eli Sheikh Tushukatech, to, to she says, to your husband will be your desire. I'll just tell you, the last comment of Rashi on this passage is telling you what Tushukatech means. And, in fact, if you don't mind, I'll just jump to the end of this Rashi. Tushukatech. Tavatech, your desire. Kamo, and he brings a posse from Yeshaya, v'nafshou shokeka. So he's telling you what the root shin kuf kuf means. He says it means desire. And he learns that from a posse in Yeshaya, which talks about people in a, in a bad state and they're desiring something to drink. And it's interesting, Rashi there says it means taiva and he, relate, he refers you back to this posse here. So this posseck here tells you to go to that posseck there and that posseck there tells you to go to this Posik here, telling you about the same thing. Okay, so what type of desire is it? So let's go back to the previous comment. <laughs> your desire for sexual relations. That's what he's talking about. The woman will have the desire. <laughs> and nevertheless, you will not have literally the forehead, which means the brazenness, to request it verbally, Elahu Yimshal Bach, but he will rule over you. Hakol velomi mech. everything is from him and not from you. So the first thing to say is, some people are a little bit surprised that Rashi, not for the first time, brings it down to a matter of sex and sexuality. It's not what we would expect. But Rashi doesn't have any problem with that, because Rashi says the Torah is talking about every aspect of human life, including very important and uh, well-experienced aspects of human life, and sexuality is certainly one of those. That's number one. Number two, it's interesting... Uh, and what i'm going to say sounds perhaps a little bit like apologetics or sounds a little bit like propaganda but if you look in other before Shem, and i'm thinking of the ramban he says he rejects rashi here and says no it means that the woman will be totally subservient to the man and she will have to do everything he says and he says it's night it's mida, mida because what was the what did she do wrong she told the husband she told adam to eat from the fruit. And now the punishment is she'll never tell him ever again what to do because he will always tell her what to do. That's how the Ramban understands that. Rashi does not. Rashi limits it very significantly. And when it says, it does not mean a husband will rule over his wife as some, I think some evangelicals want to read it as. It doesn't mean that, says Rashi. It's in the particular area of marital intimacy That she will have desires, acknowledging woman's sexuality, which not everyone does, but Rashi does. She will have, based on the Gemara, she will have desires. But the nature of womankind is that she will not have the um, metzach, the uh, brazenness to demand it. Now... I think I must say we're talking generally and of course there are exceptions and some women act differently and some men act differently and maybe things have changed in the 21st century but he's talking about what he, what Chazal say is a, let's at least say a normal, a normative (coughs) case that women have sexual desires but they're not able to demand it in the way that their husbands are and when it comes to who's going to be in charge of when sexual relations take place the reality is it's going to be the husband. Um, now, just by the way, it's worth pointing out that you could say that this last part relates to the previous parts. Because labour, pregnancy, child, child rearing, they're all connected, obviously, to sexual relations. So even though she's going to be the one who, if you like, suffers, at least in some respects, from being pregnant and from giving birth and from raising children, and so you might have thought at least she will be able to determine the sexual, part, the sexual path within the marriage. No, part of the curse is that she won't. And that's why he says, <laughs> You might have thought it should come from you, but the curse is that it won't. And one more thing to say, and uh, the Mizrahi makes this point, he says it's a little bit hard to understand that the midder of tzniyot, if you like, and this perhaps is, is a good example of tzniyot, which we've already said is much more than covering elbows and knees, it's about a whole way of behaviour, and there's the elements which apply to men as well, um, not being the one who has the audacity to demand sexual relations, that's actually a good midder. So why is that considered a punishment? And says the Mizrahi, it's a little bit of a kvetch, he says it is a good middah, but nevertheless, it puts her in a difficult situation. It puts her in a situation where she's going to have desires which sometimes will be unfulfilled and that's why it's a curse. Did you want to ask something? Um, yeah, just extend to like, half the senior like how the man is the head of house. According to Rashi, No. No. And that's what I was saying. sorry. The question is for the podcast here, does it say does it imply that the man should be head of the house? And the point is no it doesn't. According to Rashi, um, it's not about that at all. It's about this particular area of married life, and it's not about other areas. And like I said I said the Ramban says this, this is completely different. It's saying the man is in charge of the household, the man is in charge of the woman, the man is in charge of everything. And I'm just pointing out that Rashi distinctly doesn't say that. Yes. and then um, pregnancy and then childbirth and the Yep. Um, could it possibly be a thematic thing in that sort of it's like the theme of like in general encompassing everything as sort of the first thing and then afterwards more specifically then there is uh, pregnancy and then birth So you're asking if um, could that be it's um, is in general, it's like the introduction. That's on its own. So you're saying that we read it as there'll be in general pain in the whole child thing and in particular in labour and in childbirth. It could be, um, that's not how Rashi reads it obviously, he sees it as a list of three and it's possible that the vav before v'heironech is a problem for your interpretation. You see why? Because you really want you. The way you're saying you'd want a semicolon there, yeah. which would not be a vav. Um, there may be others who do read it like that, uh, and maybe that's why Rushi doesn't. But I think that vav implies we've got a three-part list here. Okay, okay I think we can move on. So we finished with cursing the woman. Let's curse the man. Although, interesting enough there's a fundamental difference between the way we curse the Nachash and the woman on the one hand and the man on the other. Because in Pasuk Yud Zion it says, Adam Amar," And to the man, or to Adam, he said, Ki shamat, sorry, Ki shamata Because you listen to the voice of your wife, min sevitiha lemar lo mimenu, and you ate from the tree which I commanded you, saying, "Don't eat from it." Interestingly, he didn't say that to the woman, although maybe because he didn't actually command her, maybe that's the reason. Anyway, the result is arura haadamah ba'avurecha. The land is cursed because of you. Or let's leave that translated, Actually, ba'avurecha <laughs> is going to be an interesting. Uh, Word to understand, and then he goes on to say, with suffering, you shall eat it, kol all the days of your life." Okay, let's see what Rashi says. davarim arurim. It will raise up for you cursed things, kagon zavuvim like flies, uparushim like fleas, and ants. And then it says, continuing in Rashi, Mashal, this can be compared to a proverb, ra'a, somebody who went off the derech, I think we might say now, he went to a bad culture, makalalot, and the people cursed, shadayim shayanik mehem, the breasts from which he sucked. In other words, the mother who gave sustenance to the child when the child goes bad people curse the mother i don't think he's saying it's a nice thing to do but it's like what happens you look back to the origins of what's gone bad now why does Russia need to say that because what is different from the curse of adam to the curse of the nachash and the isha okay there's a fundamental difference that the nachash was cursed in his very physical form lost his legs The woman is cursed about something that's going to happen within to her body. But the man is cursed something sort of externally. The man is cursed, the ground is cursed, because of you. So it's not the man himself, literally, physically, who's cursed, but something around him is cursed. So Rashi has to explain in what way is the ground cursed. And the Mizrahi wants to say that actually there's two separate Rashi's here. And he thinks they should be, the second one should be introduced by Devar Acher, to make clear it's another reading. Let's go back a stage. What is the key word? What's, uh, well, I already said there's one problem in the Pasak, but it's not Adam himself who's cursed. So we have to explain how he is cursed, even though he isn't physically. But there's a word which is problematic, which Rashi is explaining. And the word is Ba'avorecha. Now, what does Ba'avorecha mean? So... You could say, in the Mizrahi says, that Rashi is actually giving two different interpretations. So the first part of Rashi says, arurim." it will raise up cursed things, like zavuvim, uh, or the the flies and the fleas and the ants. So the ground is cursed um, because of you in the sense, or the ground is cursed for your sake that the ground is cursed for your sake in other words to make things difficult for you this is how the ground is going to be cursed to make you suffer and the second one is just like when a person goes bad people curse the mother so similarly when you've gone bad the ground from which you came because remember how was Adam created from the dust of the earth that's why he's called Adam um, so that's your origins. So your origins is cursed as a result of your actions. So it's two somewhat slightly well, slightly different ways of understanding ba'avorecha. Is it? It's cursed so that it's difficult for you, or it's cursed because of you? Just like people curse the mother of a child who's gone bad. So as I said, the Mizrahi wants to say it's two separate curses, two separate ideas, two separate interpretations of ba'avorecha. Any other questions? Okay, let's go on with the curse. So because in Pasuk Yudchet, he says, "The the darda, and thorns and thistles, it will sprout for you, the et et hasadeh, and you will eat the grass of the field." Any problems with that verse? I'll take that as a no. But Rashi thinks there are problems. <laughs> Rashi's cleverer than all of us. Okay. First word is ha'aretz. What does that mean? The land, the ground. Why is Rashi saying that? Because what? what what's referring to a land? Which word in the pasuk? Tatzmiach. Very good. Okay. So, Tatzmiach is a verb without a subject. So we need to know what the subject is. Now, the subject could be, if it's not the earth, which Rashi says it is, what could it be? Um, it could, well, I think Adam, I don't think it could be the thorns and the thistles. Will sprout. It, it will sprout thorns and thistles. So it's not the thorns and thistles. It's something is causing them to sprout. So it could be Adam, but there's two obvious problems with that. One, the simple one, is the grammar. Why can't it be Adam? Well, yeah. Well, okay. It's yeah, what's the grammatical problem? Why it's not Adam? It's obvious. Okay. What? It's feminine. Okay. Tatsmiach with a tough at the front is feminine. So it can't be Adam, who is definitely masculine. So it's Haaretz. But it also doesn't make sense that Adam will make an effort to cause thorns and thistles to grow. So either because of the meaning or because of the grammar, Rashi has to tell us what the subject is, because it's one of those verbs which is very common in Hebrew, where the or in the Tanakh, where the subject is not explicit. So Rashi has to help us work out what the subject is. So then Rashi goes on to say, Kusha mine when you will sow types of seeds, tatzmiach cuts the It will grow thorns and thistles. And then Rashi says, Kundas the the Akaviat. Does anyone know what kundas and akaviat are without cheating? <laughs> Got him. Okay, so the article translation and the Silverman translation and pretty much every other translation I saw is that they are artichokes and charoons. <laughs> Sorry, cardoons. No, in French, the Old French is charoons. It's another place in Rashi where he gives the Old French translation of darda and it's the Old French for... Um, a vegetable, which I don't know what it is, Cardoons. Anyone know what a cardoon is? Well, according to Wikipedia, it's a thistle of the artichoke family. So, okay, what's the significance? Can anyone guess where we're going with this? Why does Rashi say that kotsvadarada, which we translate as thorns and thistles, are actually artichokes and cardoons? Because because the Pasuk goes on to say, well, once we fully understood the Pasuk, that, that Adam is going to eat them, that they are edible thorns and thistles. So Rashi has to explain what type of thorns and thistles are they that are edible. What? Ah, oh, do you like artichokes? Is that... Let's read on in Rashi. Is that that... Shh! Let's read on in Rashi. Okay, I'll just answer that question. The next five words. The Hain... They are edible, but with fixing. So we also say, the Mephoshim say, they're not very nice to eat. They're They're bitter. And Rashi says they take work. Unlike apples, for instance. If an apple grows, you don't need to do anything to it. But if an artichoke grows and a kardun, you have to prepare it. So it's hard work. And that's the theme of what Hashem is saying to Adam. It, you are going to be able to eat, and that's coming up in the next passage as well. You're not going to starve to death. That's not the intention. It's just going to be hard. Yes? Is there similarly a contrast between the artichoke and the apple? Well, first of all, it wasn't an apple. I said apple because it's just something that grows on the tree and it's easy to eat. Are you thinking of the apple that they ate? Yes. No, like, maybe you weren't here this week. No, okay, no. how many... I, I don't want to embarrass you. I probably will now. How many, <laughs> how many possibilities does the Gemara give for what the fruit was? Three. Seven. And wh- not one of them is an apple. an apple. And where do we get, where do we get the apple from? Christian, Christian iconography. Okay. So it wasn't. Oh, 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 <laughs> oh. <What> was that? <laughs> I heard. But we won't put that on the podcast, right. <laughs> so, says Rashi, they are artichokes and cardoons, which are eaten al yidei tikkun. So you can eat them, because the idea is not that you're going to starve, but you're going to have to work hard. And then, to continue the theme, the Pasuk says, achalta et eisev hasade." You will eat the grass of the field. So one question is, what's the relationship between the thorns and the thistles, which we know are architucs and cardoons, and the asev HaSadeh? Rashi has to explain, because the Pasek says, this is what's going to grow, and then he says, you're going to eat asev HaSadeh. So is that the same as what's growing, or, or what? And there's another problem with Adam being cursed that he's going to eat asev HaSadeh. Now what would that curse, why, what would that problem be? The problem will be if you look at Perak Aleph Pasuk Kaftet. Tet. So, everyone turn to Perik Aleph Pasuk Kaftet, Tet. We're back in creation mode. Nobody's eaten from any tree yet. Everything's being blessed. And Hashem says, hinei et kol Hashem says, I've given you, oh, you know what, a lovely thing I've given you to eat? All the asev, all the grass. So why is it now a curse to be told you're going to eat the grass? So Rashi's going to deal with this directly. So he says, Mm -hmm. Rashi says, Mm -hmm. What sort of curse is this? Mm -hmm. Originally, not just that he was given the grass to eat, but that was a blessing Hinei natati lachem et kol esev zorea zera, as we just saw. In Perek, ala Behold, I've given you all the grass. So that's the question. How can this now be a curse when almost the same thing was not just permitted, but was a blessing? E'lema'a morakan inyan. But, says Rashi, what is said here at the beginning of this little subsection? Arura ha'adama to achalena. The ground is cursed because of you, with suffering you will eat it. The achar and after the suffering, the kots, the thorns and thistles will sprout for you, or it will sprout for you, says Rashi, kitniot or yurakot gina. When you plant kitniot, obviously not pesta for Ashkenazim, when you plant pulses, legumes, or garden vegetables, in other words, appropriate things to be cultivating, it will sprout for you thorns and thistles, artichokes and karduns, and other herbs of the field, and you'll be forced to eat them. So Rashi said a few things. The first thing he said is there's a progression here. This is all part of a continuum. First of all, the ground is cursed. Second of all, it will grow Kotsvadarada. And third of all, you'll eat esev hasader. They're one after another. And the second point that he made, which answers this question about esev, is that you'll end up eating esev, but not by choice. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating esev Hasadeh. After all, Hashem gave it to you as a bracha. But you might prefer kitniot or yerakot gina, which is what you will plant, because those are like more sophisticated, more cultured, more civilized things to plant. But instead, you'll get kotsvadarda, which is vegetables which are bitter and need a lot of work, and you don't really want. And then you will eat a shar isve of other herbs, but not what you wanted to eat. For al tochlem, and you'll be forced to eat them. And we've just got time to read one more Pasuk, because it's a very short Rashi. In Pasuk, Tet says, With the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. Until you return to the ground because from it you were taken because you are dust and to dust you will return. And although there's lots of interesting things in there, Rashi's just got one comment. On Bezat Apercha, with the sweat of your brow. La she titarach After you have labored a lot. Now, what's Rashi doing? Simple answer is Rashi saying that this Pasuk relates to the previous one and relates to the curse. And the curse is really, you're going to have to work hard and you're not even going to get what you really want. So Bezat Apercha stresses that you're going to have to work hard. The Mizrahi says, it's somewhat different uh, focus of Rashi. You could read that literally as what will you use as a condiment for your bread? Sweat. Sweat. I mean, it's pretty old, it doesn't sound very nice. But it reads like that. If you look at it literally without uh, knowing the, the idiom. With sweat, you will eat your bread. So some people eat it dipped in vinegar, and some people will salt on their bread, and you will eat it with sweat. Says says Rashi, that's not what it means. This is Mizrahi's explanation. It's an expression of tircha. You will have to work hard, and then you'll be able to eat it. Interestingly, Rashi doesn't explain where the lechem comes from. So either he doesn't explain it, or lechem doesn't necessarily mean bread literally and rashi makes his point elsewhere that lechem means food in general he shows how lechem is referring to meat and in other places it's it's a suda in general it doesn't have to mean Dathka bread and i think that's how rashi would understand it here and that's very nice because we actually come to the end of a section and pasuk kaf moves in a slightly different direction and emir that's what we'll do next week